Welcome back to Emory University's Creativity Conversation podcast. My name is Maggie Becker. I work with Arts at Emory, a communications and advocate team for all the arts events that occur at Emory University. Part of my work with Arts at Emory is producing these podcasts. These podcasts are pulled from live recordings of Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, an endowed speaker series where renowned thinkers and creators come into conversation about their craft on Emory's campus. Today, I am joined by student and 2019-2020 Stipe Scholar Sam Edwards to introduce the 2013 Creativity Conversation with pianist and composer Donald Sosa. This conversation is moderated by Matthew Bernstein, an Emory University Film and Media Studies professor. Hello, Sam. Hi, how are you? Good. Why don't you talk a little bit about yourself? So I'm Sam Edwards. I'm a senior in the college right now, studying music and philosophy. I play French horn and piano. I'm very involved in the music department with the symphony orchestra, the wind ensemble. I'm getting very into composition. I'm thinking about going to grad school for film music composition. So that's very exciting. That's part of the reason why I chose this conversation, because it's, it's very inspiring for me. It can be really hard these days to find motivation in the arts world, and I think it was very inspiring for me to listen to it and then be able to have an idea of more of what the field that I'm going into is like, even if it's not necessarily the silent film industry. Right, yeah. so you pick this sort of because he's in a similar field that you're interested mm-hmm. in. Then, What are some of the things that he said that were inspiring to you? I think his creative process was was great because it was very similar to mine, which is which is wonderful to hear because he has these 40 years of experience, over 40 years of experience now, creating, almost improvising melodies to silent film on piano and composing beforehand as well. And he was talking about how he grew up in music and he was taught piano and he, he improvised to dance improvisation, to dance in movement, which I thought was really interesting, improv- improvising to something like that. He would have his friends come in and show him films or give him ideas to compose about, such as like, oh, um, here's this silent film maybe you should he, they put it up on a screen and he just okay let's see this is kind of this mood so he'd start playing something like that and that's similar to what my friends did freshman year here at Emory they would come in and they'd be like they'd hear me playing piano and they'd be like wow like they'd give me a scenario like oh it's like a it's like a w- blizzard night there's this guy trying to rush to the hospital to see his like newborn baby and for the first time and I'm like wow that's really intense like what is happening but then I'd have to like go to the piano and try to like recreate that on the piano and, and set that mood so hearing hearing that he had a very similar process and that it led him to the place, helped lead him to the place he is now, was pretty inspiring. Is that your current process now where you are just looking for prompts or do you have a more structured process now that you're getting farther into your education? Yeah, so I mean, I started formal composition education like later on than most people, like junior, senior year of college, but I had been playing a long time before that, creating my own pieces. So it's not more structured than it was before. Uh, It doesn't just like come out of this quantum realm (laughs) into existence. But I think that there's definitely themes and how I compose. I love using moods and themes. How What am I composing and what is the feeling that I want to listen to the audience? I think that's the first place to start at least or very close to the first place I'd start. And then all the structure comes from there because the hardest part of composing is making the decisions because every time you make a decision, your composition gets more and more compacted, more and more. I guess there's less options you have to choose from. I mean, you can always backtrack, but making decisions is a big part. And I think that making those creative steps to say, okay, this is the theme, this is the mood. It, then I'll be for this number of measures, for this like key and everything like that will come after that. What is formal composition training? What does that even entail? So <laughs> it definitely shifts and depends on like where you're going to school, like who you're studying with. Um, the music world's a lot different than other disciplines in that sense, that it really it, it matters a lot more what style your person is coming from that you're learning from and what kind of their method is. 
Do you have a mentor at Emory? Yeah. So right now, I mean, there's a lot of people that I, I draw influence from, but Dr. Mirza, he's an experimental composer on campus. He just got a professorship, which is amazing. And I guess now I have to interrupt you and say, what is an experimental composer? So yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm going off the rails here. Um, so experimental composer or a, a composer who composes experimental music is somebody who messes a lot more with sound, timbre, time in music. Timbre being like the sounds that different instruments create to create like a more contemporary, very more atmospheric type feel or listening to sounds for the sound's sake, like using extended effects on instruments. Like if you have a saxophone, like that jazz instrument, instead of having somebody just play it normally, they'd like hit the saxophone or do some type of like mouth thing on the saxophone to create a new type of sound or using percussion and in weird ways and new ways. I'm just kind of like kind of expanding the boundaries of what it means to create what kind of music. It's not just a Brahms symphony anymore. It's now you have like natural sounds, you have like voiceovers that are synthesized and it, it kind of expands the boundaries of what music is, which I think is kind of important as well. And although he's been very inspiring for me, he's not the direction I'm actually taking my composition of because I am going to be a, hopefully be a film composer and write more thematically and to emotion as opposed to expand that boundary of music. Although there's some to say that there's some overlap there too. Right, because yeah. you could create a, a certain mood that you're looking for if you kind of did a little like an off key note or like a weird use of something yeah. would kind of jar the audience mm-hmm. and maybe shift their mindset yeah. while they're watching yeah. something. How did you decide on film composition? It seems like that was a recent decision. Yeah, it was a recent decision. I mean, nowadays in higher education, it's, it's really hard to take that leap and be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go into this field that doesn't have a linear track. You have to kind of almost become an entrepreneur to make your way in the industry, make connections and, and figure that out. And for me, it was difficult to make the decision because I was gonna, I was gonna go to law school. And oh, that is a big decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and <laughs> and because I, I was, I'm also a philosophy major, and I was gonna go to law school. And I decided at the last moment, no, this isn't actually really what I want. Um, what do I want? And what I wanted to do is compose music, and I wanted to compose music in collaboration with other artists, so film and other visual media too, not just necessarily film. And I wanted to make people feel something. I wanted to be able to reach out through another through another industry to an audience and be able to have that effect on people. Plus, it's very fun, like gratification why it's just intrinsically it's fun to make music and feel that effect for yourself because if you feel moved by your music you know that other people will so I, I think that's that's kind of the reason why I decided to finally pursue it awesome thank you so much for sharing your time and craft with us please enjoy this edited version of the creativity conversation with Donald Sozin you can find the full conversation with a video on YouTube linked in the description of this episode Thank you for coming to this creativity conversation with pianist Donald Sosin, which is sponsored by the Center for Creativity and the Arts of Emory University. Let me introduce Mr. Sosin and then we will begin. A native of New York and a graduate of the University of Michigan at Columbia University, Donald Sosin is one of the premier international silent accompanists in the world. He plays at major international and American film festivals, such as the Giornate del Cinema Muto in Portinari, Italy, the Bologna Retrovato in Bologna, Telluride, many major venues around the country, including the Film Society of Lincoln Center, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Valley <coughs> Theater, Symphony Space, the Film Forum, Pacific Film Archive, the Harvard Film Archive, the Museum of the Moving Image, and the Museum of Modern Art, where he was the resident silent film accompanist in the late 1970s, and where he continues to perform as a guest artist. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Donaldson. Can you tell us 
how did you get into recording music for silent films? You were studying classical music, composition. It, it developed, Matthew, and first of all, thank you so much for allowing me to come here again and share a few moments to talk and to play. Thank you all for being here. Anyway, I was in, in Ann Arbor playing for dance classes, for both jazz and ballet classes. And I think that was the beginning of trying to make sense of some sort of musical accompaniment for movement. Because I wasn't playing standard repertoire, I was simply improvising whatever came to mind for those classes. It just wasn't the nature of those particular classes that they needed to have Minsky and, and Tchaikovsky and the, the rest of the repertoire. So I was just making it up, and it was a lot of fun. I was learning ragtime because my composition teacher, William Albright, was a specialist in ragtime and friends with William Balcom, who was another great proponent of ragtime and wrote a lot and played a lot of, of classic rag. So I started to learn that literature. And then one night in my dorm, somebody brought in a Laurel and Hardy movie on a projector, and I had been playing some dinner music for the hell of it. It was just a natural segue to play for the movie, and I have no idea what I played. It was probably some ragtime. And I don't think I'd ever seen any Laurel and Hardy except little clips on TV. Back in the early 70s, or actually, in the 60s and in the 50s when I grew up, there was very little silent film available to see except in things like Fractured Flickers, which was a syndicated TV show. And they would show Keystone Cops with cars racing around and Hans Conried, the actor, would do voiceovers telling everybody how funny it was. But that was it for silent films unless you went to the Museum of Modern Art where they had a guy named Arthur Kleiner who was playing there for the revivals of films in their collection. There were no international festivals. There was very little scholarship on silent film, much less on silent film music. Then my teacher was asked by the film society, the, the Campus Film Society in Michigan, if he wanted to accompany a screening of Phantom of the Opera. And he said, well, Donald, you've already done this a little bit. Why don't you do it? So, was from a Laurel and Hardy short to two screenings of Phantom of the Opera back to back. Uh, and I practically fell over at the end of three hours of playing, but that was the beginning. When you were in Michigan, you were studying composition? Yeah. Or? I was a composition major and I'd been studying piano since I was four, both classical piano and then I was able to play by ear, so I was getting called to do theater work and play for singers in restaurants and uh, as well as the dance classes. Let me go back a bit. When did you start playing the piano and That's, studying the piano? At four, my, we had a piano in our house and I was banging on it, so my parents gave me lessons. And, uh, Your parents were musicians? No, but music, passionate music lovers, they're in their 90s now and they still go to a couple of concerts a week during the season. And so they exposed my sister and me to a lot of music. We played chamber music, we sang, we went to music camp for two or three years and met other young musicians. And, became very devoted to the idea of music as a possible career choice, even though my parents were not particularly enthusiastic about that. <laughs> they had heard, A, that musicians were neurotic, and that, B, you couldn't make a living at it. So, uh, or maybe they were neurotic because you couldn't make a living at it. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, I want to get back to the film music, but how does, how have you made a living out of playing? Yeah. Well, I joke that we have a stack of 1099s that's like this. It's, 
I've only had a, a steady job for two years of my 40-year career, and that was, uh, as you mentioned, arranging sheet music at Warner Brothers, where I sat at a desk and listened in those days on reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders to whatever they were publishing, whether it was George Harrison or Richard Hell and the Voidoids or Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell, and I would have to listen and transcribe every note of the recording so that little girls in Ohio could play it on their keyboards. And when it got to be the, the, the situation that all the songs were just punk rock and the left hand had nothing to do except like, da 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 I said, that's enough. <laughs> so I left that and went back to doing freelance theater work in New York. Which you've done a great deal of. So from Laurel and Hardy to Phantom of the Opera twice yes. to what next? Oh, well, next, PBS had a series of silent films uh, in the early 70s called The Silent Years. And so I was watching that and thought the music was wonderful. It was by somebody named William Perry. The production company was based in New York. I wrote him a fan letter. And he wrote back a nice letter to me in December of 71 and said, well, Donald, uh, I don't know how his voice sounded then, but uh, when you come to New York, why don't you look me up? And uh, we'll have a little chat. So I had a little chat with him. He was very nice. He was also the accompanist at the Museum of Modern Art. He's playing for all of, of their films, having taken over from Arthur Kleiner and, and Charles Hoffman. So he was the third in line. And when I got out of Michigan and moved to New York, I became the fourth in line. First substituting for Bill, sometimes going on, going over there on my lunch hour uh, at Warner Brothers to play a, an hour of film and sneak back to the office. And then he left to do other things, produce a Broadway show, which I also worked on, do some other PBS series. And so we've remained in touch. He's 83 now, and we see each other from time to time. And he was a great mentor, and the reason that I'm sitting here, really, because I don't, I don't know what would have happened beyond Michigan had there not been a real entree into the professional world. After Phantom of the Opera, I played for many screenings for two years in Michigan for all the film societies. Uh, we hauled an old Steinway upright that must have weighed five tons into the auditorium and, and whatever they were showing in their film history classes, whether it was Griffith or Murnau. Or, I played for everything. Sometimes I would have time to look at the films with a film professor and talk about it and study it because I knew nothing about silent films at that point. So I was learning as I was going. Some of the scores were available. So could you talk to us a bit about how, what your process is in preparing or improvising a score? Because when you play at these film festivals where I've seen you performed, perform and enjoyed your music, oftentimes you don't have a chance to see the film ahead of time. So could you talk about your process in both those instances where you do have a chance to research the film or at least watch it? And then those instances where you have to kind of make it up as it's unrolling. Okay, so it's it, there's a wide range of uh, requirements in doing this kind of work. And on one side, it's sitting down to play for an audience for a film that I've never seen before. And on the other side, it's working at home in my studio and very meticulously scoring every moment of the film for an ensemble of piano quintet, where I have the opportunity to look at the film many, many, many times and figure out how many bars is necessary for each scene. Playing for a film extemporaneously is, on a wing and a prayer, it, it depends. I'm very 
fortunate to have had the training that I had in classical music and the exposure to all different other kinds of music, whether it was Bulgarian folk music or uh, square dancing music or, or whatever, because in the world of silent film, which is a worldwide enterprise between 1895 and around 1933 or 34, everything shows up on screen. New Zealand Maori dances or Russian Cossacks or gold mining in the Yukon. So I have to have an entire universe of sound inside my consciousness to do this. So where does that all come from? It comes from a place deep inside of me that is infinitely creative, and it's inside all of you too. It's inside everything. It's a field of pure silence and pure potential, which physicists call the quantum field, or Eastern mystics or Vedic scientists call the field of pure consciousness. So out of that complete silence, it's a, it's a field where anything possible can materialize. A chair, it's, you know, it's what, whatever, what might come out of a white hole, you know? A chair, a battleship, Matthew. <laughs> so out of that field, it's like you dip into that field. I, I practice transcendental meditation. So twice a day, I dip into that field and I contact this field of infinite possibility. And out of that, I can go here, I can go here, I can go here, I can go here. But to whatever extent anybody's creative, you're doing that all every day. We're making this conversation up as we're going along. I don't know what he's going to tell me. I don't know what is going to come next in the film that I'm playing for that I've never seen before. But we've had many conversations before, and I've seen many films before, and there's, you get to a point after 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 films where certain patterns start to emerge. So there's a Western, or there's a spy film, or there's a romance or there's uh, a newsreel about the assassination of some uh, guy in Eastern Europe. From the storehouse of sounds that I've picked up, I mean, some, some people collect baseball cards, some people are good at, at, at knowing the names of trees and plants. I'm good at collecting musical sounds and store them, and then I can draw on them when necessary. And if I don't know what to do, then I just make it up. So that's what being a composer is about. You learn how to, to do that. It's what studying improvisation at the keyboard, which is my main instrument, although I play a little bit of guitar, a little bit of, of uh, recorder and bass. So it's just you know, drawing from all those areas and hoping that I get it right. Yeah, I'm recalling that uh, at Bologna's uh, Retrobato, you were accompanying a Russian film from the teens about programs against Jews in shtetls, and uh, we were very impressed because you, I think you broke into a theme from the Passover Seder, uh, or, or Kol Nidre, the, the, the famous right. prayer for Yom Kippur, and we were just, I mean, we're always astonished when you play, but we were astonished at the range of knowledge, musical knowledge. Which um, it's just, just sort of this, this grab bag of stuff from having grown up in a Jewish household, having played in lots of churches, so I've I've started to collect Protestant hymns and the Catholic liturgy and the, the Jewish liturgy all jumbled together. I was playing Kol Nidre in church, actually, <laughs> on, uh, on Sunday right after the holiday. And the, the priest says, oh, Donald, very nice to hear Kol Nidre here. So, uh, 
as part of the prelude when people were coming in. It's a very ecumenical. So you have this infinite storehouse of potential music. How do you narrow it down? How do you make a specific choice? Can you well, give us an example? Sure. Just come up with a situation. Let's create a scene for a film. Farm. A farm. <laughs> What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word farm? Wait. Old McDonald's. So you can start with that. Okay, so I probably wouldn't go there. <laughs> It was a comedy unless there were kids in the audience because they would relate to that right away. They would think it was funny if it was a Disney cartoon and there were farm animals. It would be appropriate. It would have been done in the day, probably to death, by pianists who either had a stack of music that they played from over and over and over again if they were working in the theater, or they had some... Uh, leech, some cue sheets that the producer of the film later on in the teens and twenties set them saying, when the monster comes in, play. Or when the girl comes in, play. So those kinds of things were in the public consciousness at that time, and they also filtered into what became the soundtracks for cartoons. If you listen to early Bugs Bunny, and before that, the Disney cartoons, the Benny Boo cartoons. There's all these references to pieces in the classical and the pop repertoire in Charlie Chaplin's 1942 score for Gold Rush after the fact. He went back and once he had started writing music for films with the help of other Hollywood people like David Raxson, he would go, he went back and he would play on the piano or the violin different tunes and then orchestrators would put them together. So in his score for for a gold rush, you hear, or during a dance sequence, you hear, um, so neither of which I will play tonight. <laughs> okay. Well, just, so why do you laugh? Why, why were you laughing? I, I'm not playing it, not because I don't think it's funny, but because I think it will draw your attention away from the film. So. Getting back to Old MacDonald, that is immediately in a farm situation. It'll be a farm, but it'll be a farm that we know. And we haven't ever seen this farm on screen before. So where is this farm? Wheatfield. A wheat field. So it's not funny critters running around. It's maybe something like. So where am I now? I'm in like Aaron Copeland farm D.W. Griffith's Corner and Wheat, anybody know that film? Anybody seen that film? So I, that's the kind of soundscape that I'm using for that film. Can't remember the name, but it's like that. We can narrow down, we could say, the farm is in Switzerland. Associations, you get that that's a storm because you've watched films for how many ever years you've watched films. Other people have done that already, so you saw, oh, so there's a storm, you know. That's a storm. This is not a storm. So we, we make, as we learn music by osmosis, listening to the radio, listening to our MP3s, 
we get this whole big catalog of associations between images and music. And so my job is to just act as a filter and say, hmm, that, no, 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 that, no. It happens very, very, very fast. And if I'm watching a film and I don't know what's going to happen next, and I'm sitting there, maybe I'm just treading water for a while. And then suddenly the door opens. Is it a good guy or is it a bad guy? <laughs> and then the heroine comes in. And then she sees that there's somebody else in the room that she doesn't like too much. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, those are musical cliches because, again, we listened to them for a long, long time. I used to collect TV themes and just they were so well matched to the style of the TV show, like, um, that kind of dates me. If you're young, you don't know that's um, Or Captain Kangaroo. Children's show from the 60s. Anyway, I'll shut up now and let Matthew ask me no, um, But you also have a command of the connotations of different tonalities, different rhythms, and all of that comes into play, especially if you're avoiding something like Old MacDonald at a farm. And you were but I could do a sound away. Or I could play it as though it were a Japanese song. Or I could, or I, I like to take Beatles songs and then do them in the styles of different composers. So, which we could do. Let's see. Yes. <laughs> Give me a song. Love me. Give me a composer. Brahms. <laughs> <laughs> so here, I mean, what makes that enjoyable, I hope, is that we have what Arthur Kessler calls by association, where you have this plane and this plane, and they come smashing into each other, and the, the result is, aha! The familiarity of the Beatles songs in a different context. This bi-association thing, it, it's uh, from his book called The Act of Creation. So he starts off talking about creativity in terms of humor. And it just gets kind of scientific after the first couple of chapters. But if you're interested in creativity, that's a really good starting point. The Act of Creation by Arthur Kessler. I've read a lot of other things on creativity. There's a wonderful book by an artist named Barbara Vonchek called Art, Consciousness, and the Veda. Veda being the, the scriptures from India, which for a long time were thought to be hymns to various deities, but more recently have been analyzed and, and talked about by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi of the Transcendental Meditation Movement and some of his scientists to say that the Vedas are really a blueprint for the human nervous system, and that every single one of the the deities, the devatas that are mentioned in the Upanishads and in the Vedas are all part of our own physiology. And the qualities that are ascribed to those gods are within each one of us. Delving into the, those kinds of things, I think, promotes creativity. Sitting down twice a day and doing 
nothing but feeling alert and happy inside promotes a feeling of being able to do this kind of silly stuff on the outside. I don't think if I were a really unhappy person that, that I'd be able to go here and, and go there. It also, it's part of being a Libra. <laughs> when you make a, a choice to play a specific reference for a particular piece of film, how do you choose to like vary that up, or like to what degree do you include you know, like a variance and sort of like a reference to a specific film, or like when you're playing multiple sort of like iterations of Phantom of the Opera, do you just sort of like keep it the same thing the whole time? Within one screening? Yeah, yeah, well, no, no, like so between one screening to another. Oh, sometimes it's entirely different. I have many notebooks filled with themes that I've written over the years for different films and character themes the hero, the villain, whatever the characters are. Dance music, if necessary, I'll show you a piece of Chaplin in a, in a minute where I had to look and see what kind of a dance are they doing. I had a string quartet and a piano at my disposal, so that, that's something that I work carefully on. In an improvisational situation, I probably wouldn't play the same thing exactly twice. It depends on how I'm feeling, it depends on the kind of audience it is. And I don't like doing the same thing really twice in it twice or three times in a row for the same reason that I didn't become a Broadway conductor and do the same thing over and over and over again. Of all the films you work with, what are your favorite to accompany stylistically or just narratively? That's a good question. Comedies are really hard to improvise, but I like to score them because then, they, then they're very precise and neat, and maybe it would be a good time to show maybe yes. this. So here's a film that I had never played for, never, never accompanied before. And then for this new version, new, a new edition of Chaplin, The Mutuals from 1916, there are 12 of them. The Bologna Film Archive in association with Lobster Films is restoring all of them and releasing them each with two scores. There'll be an instrumental score, sometimes a full orchestra, or a small ensemble, in this case a piano quintet that's string quintet and piano. And then they also asked some of us to record piano improvisations for the films. So uh, with Easy Street, The Immigrant, and The Pawn Shop, uh, all of which I knew and had played for, I just improvised something which was totally unlike what I had done with, with other performances. And it had to be done very quickly, so there wasn't a whole lot of time to correct mistakes, if any. With this film, I worked on it for about, uh, I would say, two weeks. And then we went into the studio. It's 20, 24 minutes long. And here's a little excerpt. There's a dance band on screen. So that was my deciding impulse in, in choosing what to score this for.
silent music. You said, I'm often looking for ways to make the film accompaniment more silent so that the disappearance of music would be perceived as an integral part of the film and not something forced on the listener. So how do you walk that tightrope? Well, hard to do in a comedy. When the orchestra stopped playing and then they, and they go like this, and Chopla comes out, and then the conductor silences them, then I had a choice. They're not playing on screen, so probably there's no reason for me to have them play. But the pianist can't be seen, so I just decided that I would have the pianist accompany him rather than simply leave it completely silent. And that was just a personal choice. What you're talking about that I said comes more into play is in very dramatic situations. Have a clip of something like that. This is a German film called Unter der Laterna, Under the Lamppost, by Gerhard Lamprecht, who was active in the 20s and then up to the 60s. In this clip, a woman has been thrown out of her father's house because she wants to hang out with her boyfriend. And so she's been put on the streets. The boyfriend takes her in, but not for long, because she gets picked up by an agent for whom she is working as a dancer. And so once the boyfriend sees this, he throws her out, too. So it's progressively downward spiral 
And I think in this situation, in this scene, there's just moments of silence. But let's go back so we can see how we got to that. Oh, this is her father telling the police that you don't have to look for her anymore. She discovered that she's the mistress of this agent, and so he's through with her. There's more to deal with emotionally. I was at the New York Philharmonic last night watching Hitchcock uh, with live orchestra clips from five films. It was a wonderful event. And Bernard Herrmann in Vertigo and in North by Northwest really understands the psychological underpinnings of these characters. And that's very, very interesting to do. Writing music for comedies is fine, but after a while, it's just another chase and trying to find where in the beat, the, the person gets hit on the face or falls down. And so it's a much more mechanical type of process, even though you, you can write fun music that way. It's, it's kind of one dimensional. Is there a director that really speaks to you musically, stylistically? Uh, well, I mean, the, the great drama directors of the 20s, like Murnau and von Sternberg, Griffith, I love playing for Griffith. Although his, his idea of cutting uh, makes things very hard, particularly at the end of his films, where you have this, 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 and you don't know, am I supposed to play for Lillian on the ice, or am I supposed to play for David coming through the forest? So as with sound films, it becomes more of a montage, and you have to just kind of play the drama of everything and not worry about whether you're actually in this scene or in this scene. 
Donald, we could talk easily for another half an hour. This has been an incredible opportunity to learn about your creative process. So thank you. Thank you. For joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and Instagram at Emory Arts. Mm-hmm.